Uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, which is where we'll be for the remainder of the morning. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and I'm going to go ahead and read this passage beginning in verse 12. 1 Samuel 2, 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. All that the fork would brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all the things that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold. The days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. 
Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel bread. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's take a moment to pray. Father, what a sobering account. I pray that this morning you would make us all realize and understand the truth that those who honor you, you will honor. And those who despise you shall be lightly esteemed. Pray that you would make us a people who honor you with our lips and our lives and who do not consider you a lightweight. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know the sad reality that not all Christian leaders prove to be examples of Christian living. Seems like just about every week some pastor is having to resign because he's having an affair or because he's embezzled some money from the ministry of which he was a part. I think this thing is the exception to the rule, but it happens way too often. In fact, the corruption of religious leaders has been so common throughout history that it's more or less a literary trope. Uh, Think about, for example, the clergymen traveling together with other pilgrims toward the shrine of Thomas a Becket in Geoffrey Chaucer's famous anthology, The Canterbury Tales. There's a monk, a nun's priest, a pardoner, a summoner, a parson, a prioress, and a friar, and most of them are, in the story, as corrupt as the day is long. They're not even ashamed of it. The pardoner, a medieval clergyman, whose job it was to sell indulgences, to take money from people in in exchange for the assurance that he could give them that their sins were forgiven or that their loved ones were going to go to heaven, puts it very well. Here's what the partner says. What do you think as long as I can preach and get their silver for the things I teach, that I will live in poverty from choice? That's not the counsel of my inner voice. There's no apostle I would counterfeit I mean to have money, wool and cheese and wheat, though it were given me by the poorest lad or poorest village widow, though she had a string of starving children all agape. No, let me drink the liquor of the grape and keep a jolly girl in every town. You know, I wish it were the case that the pardoner is a specter from a dark and distant past that no Baptist preacher could ever be accused of making these lines of verse his life song. But the sad truth is that to one degree or another, there are too many leaders from any Christian tradition 
who grow fat by devouring the people they are called to serve. And the fatter they become, the more they throw their weight around, destroying fragile souls and despising the Lord they are supposed to represent. Now, if that bothers you, you need to know that you're not alone in that. That, in fact, God's opinion about these things is uh, very clear in the passage that we just read. And in today's sermon text, we're going to see the storm clouds sort of gather over the heads of Israel's pastors, these sons of Eli. We're going to see that those who use a spiritual office to gratify their own lusts are in for a, a seriously rude awakening. And we need to think about what's taking place at Shiloh's Gate on Eli's watch because those dangers are still around today. So this morning, what I hope to do is ask three questions. First, how is it that spiritual leaders tend to throw their weight around? Secondly, why does the Lord hate that so much? And then finally, what does he intend to do about it? So consider with me our first question, how do leaders throw their weight around? Briefly, let me just give you a high-level high overview of the, the place where we're at in the book of 1 Samuel. You might call chapters 2 and 3 the gathering storm. In these chapters, there are three cycles of comparison between the sons of Eli on the one hand and the son of Hannah and Elkanah on the other, this boy Samuel. There's these three comparisons. So notice, for example, verse 17, Eli's sons are committing great sins. How? They're doing it in the sight of the Lord. And yet when we get to verse 21, meanwhile, Samuel's growing in the sight of the Lord. That's one cycle of comparison. Then again, verse 25, God's so displeased with Eli's sons, he means to put them to death. Meanwhile, verse 26, uh, Samuel pleases the Lord. He has favor with the Lord. And then in verses 27 and following, Eli receives a word of judgment regarding his sons. And then in chapter 3, uh, Samuel actually receives the word of the Lord, and then the result is, as you, you get to the end of chapter 3 and on into chapter 4, none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. He becomes an effective leader in the nation of Israel. So with these three uh, cycles of, of comparison, what I want to do today is sort of focus in on Eli's sons, and, and uh, I'll leave Samuel's story for Pastor Andrew next week. He's going to be preaching from cha uh, chapter 3, and... Uh, but that's the big picture. That, that's why today we're focused on these two uh, worthless men, Hophni and Phinehas. And notice the assessment of these men in verse 12. They did not know the Lord. That might sound familiar to you if you've recently read from the book of Judges. It actually harks back to Judges 2.10. This is the same indictment that was given against the spiritual leaders in that day, centuries before, and we're meant to ask the question, what happened the last time the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel were this ignorant of the Lord? How did it go the last time? Not well. And that's an indictment of these young men. It's an indictment of Eli. They should have known. They've seen this happen. It's an indictment on the nation of Israel as a whole. And because they don't know the Lord, they take the power, the influence that they have because of their office as priests, and they begin to throw their weight around. How do they do that? They use their office to gratify their appetites. So look at what these guys are doing. Verse 13. 
It was the habit of the priests with the people that when anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's young man would stab his fork into every pot and pan and kettle and plate. And we're we're meant to see this vivid scene. You're you're meant to imagine in your mind's eye this jarring scene. Hophni and Phinehas and and their their, uh, acolytes are walking around frantically with forks in hand and they're stabbing them into any receptacle that might hold a morsel of meat. Pigs are not allowed in the tabernacle precincts, but here's these human hogs, and they're rooting around in everybody's stuff. Now, I know we don't go to the tabernacle or have these sacrifices anymore, so let me just back up and explain a little bit. According to Leviticus 7 and Deuteronomy 18, the priests have every right to take some of the meat, a small portion of the meat from these sacri- some of these sacrificial Animals. So what would normally happen, what was supposed to happen, is that the animal would be slaughtered. Part of the animal, very specific portions of the animal, get put on the altar and they get burned up and consumed. Part of the animal goes with the family who brought the sacrifice and they have a feast, a sort of uh, celebration of worship together as a family. And then a small portion would go to the priest who offered the sacrifice. And it was supposed to be a very specific part of the animal. But Hophni and Phinehas, they're not satisfied with that. They're going to go all, they're going all over to the campfires of all the people around the tabernacle, and they're sticking their fork in everybody's stuff. They're not satisfied with the amount that God has allotted to them. And if that weren't enough, look at verse 15. They're interrupting these worshipers in the middle of the act of worship, in the middle of the sacrifice, in order to get the, the prime cuts. Uh, here's what they say. Give meat for the priest to roast For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Here's a translation in in the modern vernacular for you. We are sick of Campbell's chunky beef stew. We want a ribeye for the grill. That's what they're saying. Leviticus 7 makes it very clear. You're not supposed to eat the fat of a sacrificial animal, but the person who does this shall be, this is what Moses says, shall be cut off from his people. So this is a very serious thing. And everybody knows this. They're coming to the tabernacle. They know they're supposed to burn the fat on the altar. And yet, their pastor, the the spiritual leader, the guy who's supposed to know more about this than anybody else, interrupts them in the middle of the act of worship and says, hey, give me that piece right there. I mean, how jarring would that be? What are they doing? They're using their office to gratify their appetites. They're not satisfied with the quantity or the quality of the things that God has given them. Now listen, there are a handful of leaders or aspiring leaders out in front of me today and perhaps some listening online, and you need to know something. Being a leader in ministry, I mean, this is obvious to me, being a leader in ministry, it involves a little bit of sacrifice. It involves a little bit of austerity. It's going to cost you. You will have enough. But the ministry is no way to get rich. It shouldn't be. Read through the law regarding the descendants of Aaron. They, some of you are doing this. If you're reading through the Bible in a year, and you're, you might be coming up on some of these texts. The, the priests are allotted a very specific income from the nation of Israel. And uh, it, it's not very much. Uh, they're not like all the other clans and tribes in Israel. All the other Israelites pass land from generation to generation, not so the Levites. They don't get any land. They don't get these massive tracts of acres and acres and acres of land. 
Not only that, but if you look at how they're compensated, it's not tenderloin, aged to perfection and grilled to a medium rare. They get boiled meat. So what, what, what they're doing is they're, they're basically, their portion is the Lord, and they're supposed to live on stew rather than steak. I mean, that's the reality that they're facing. They're not going hungry, but they're not exactly living the high life either. And God tells them, I'm your portion. You get me. You get to spend more time with me than all these other people who are out there working their fingers to the bone and working the land. And it seems to me that the same thing is true today. By the way, this is not a comment about the way that Indian Creek takes care of us. The church takes care of us very well. But it's a very different type of job. I mean, the truth of the matter is, if you are going to go into full-time, like, paid ministry, you want to be a leader in the church or at a parachurch organization, you are going to, here's, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go through a lot of lean years. It's the way it is. You're going to watch the people in your peer group reaching financial milestones that you never actually reach. You're going to watch them driving cars that you don't get to drive. They're, they're getting all these perks that you see. And, of course, you don't see all the difficulty they go through. You just notice the perks. But you're going to have to do without some of those things. It's just the way it is. And you're going to find yourself in the grind, dealing with the realities of ministry, the tedium, the heaviness of people's problems, the reality that they might not listen to the things that you say. They might not call the bulletin the worship guide, you know. It just might not happen. Just a joke. It might happen, Pastor Andrew. But if you let that discontentment ride, you're going to notice all the ways that you can begin to use your office to influence other people and get the things that you want. And then you're going to start telling yourself you deserve it, that you deserve more for all the things you're putting up with. You deserve better than the portion the Lord has allotted to you. And what you need to know is that for many spiritual leaders, they figure out a way to use their office and their influence to fill their bellies. And the truth is that to one degree or another, we all face this temptation, don't we? Whether you're a leader or not, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to make a decision whether you're going to go after the things that fill your belly, sometimes, or the things that you know God wants you to do. There are times when you come to a choice. I mean, think about it. Christians live on 90% or less of what they earn because of their generosity. Are we ready for that? When God says, hey, it's dinner time, and I've provided the things that you need, and he sets before you a plate, and there it is. It's beef stew. It's not steak. Are you ready for that? These guys are throwing their weight around. They're treating the offering of the Lord with contempt in order to get more than what God gives and better than what God gives. And that's just the start. Look at verse 22. Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So these guys are using their position to sexually abuse the women who are working at the tabernacle precincts. Now, you just had to know, didn't you? that this was going to be a problem for these guys. I mean, what is it about spiritual leaders who, when they want to abuse their authority, they end up getting into sexual sin? I don't know what it is. And by the way, I don't think it's too strong to say this is sexual abuse. These guys are spiritual leaders. They have the spiritual authority, and God lays all of the blame on them. Why is it that this ends up being a particular problem for men with spiritual authority? You know, I think there are probably a lot of reasons for that, but I'm just going to mention one. Spirit, here's, here's one powerful reason why. Spiritual familiarity 
without spiritual vitality breeds religious cynicism. Spiritual familiarity without spiritual vitality breeds religious cynicism. This is what's happening in these guys' lives. They are exposed to the worship of I am every single day. Eli has taught them the Bible. They're familiar with it. And and yet, without the real fear of the Lord in their heart, that familiarity with the Bible breeds contempt for the Word of God and for the God that they worship. They had no qualms about sleeping with one of these women, and then they get, they get out of the tent, they get dressed in their priestly garbs, and they go out and they do a sacrifice. No problem at all. Completely cynical about these things. The more you serve, the more you lead in God's church, the more you need to be on guard against this. I remember uh, as a young person going to summer camp as a teenager with some of the spiritual giants of the faith, Bible college students, you know, as the counselors, right? These spiritually mature people. I'm being sarcastic, okay? If you didn't know, you don't know many Bible college students, all right? But to, to me as a high schooler, I'm thinking, whoa, these guys are just like on fire for God. They're amazing. And then a few years later, I worked at that camp as a counselor. When I was a Bible college student, we got to where we knew what all the preachers were going to say. We knew how they were going to say it, and we got to see how it all worked. Like, you get the kids, uh, in, you pump them full of sugar, and you get them into these, like, intense activities, and they sit down in the evening service, and they're really tired, and then a preacher tells a bunch of really emotional stories, and you could just see the teenagers, how they're going to respond. And it was very easy as a college student, because we were so familiar with what we were doing, for it to become old hat. This is one of the ways that leaders become desensitized to sexual sin. It starts by being desensitized to spiritual truth. It starts with spiritual boredom. I've already heard this story. I mean, how many of you have ever thought that? Be honest. The Moses in the burning bush, yes, I heard that. I, I remember hearing that when I was five. Okay, wait a second. The, the God who created the universe appeared to a man in a bush that was burning, but it wasn't being burned. This is amazing. It's, how can we be bored with this? And yet we do. And we use our position of trust and authority to, to bring that religious cynicism to bear to get what we want. We've talked about Eli's sons. What about Eli? Did you notice how Eli finds out what's going on? I mean, read between the lines of Eli's comments to his son. I've, I've heard all these things, Eli, or uh, sons. I've heard, I've heard all these things from all the people of Israel. It's like Eli is the last to find out. Now, that's an indictment against uh, Eli for his lack of parenting skills. But more than that, these are grown men. More than that... It's not a good reflection of his oversight of the worship of the tabernacle. He's looking the other way because these guys are his sons. And I just want to ask, is that the kind of thing that we do in church today? Now, in Eli's case, it was a case of nepotism. Uh, Sure, that's an issue. That's a thing. But what about when we overlook a leader's character because of his charisma, because of his gifts, his talents? If a guy has nice hair and cool clothes and he tells funny jokes and interesting stories and he has the right stage presence, if he can sing and play the guitar and hit all the right notes, then we put up with all kinds of shenanigans in his personal life because he, he's representing the brand. 
And we put up with brawlers and philanderers and narcissists and psychopaths because they stand on a stage and they check all the right boxes. And if that's the case, how are we as a people going to avoid downgrading into the kind of things that were said about the nation of Israel during the time of the judges, the kind of things that the nation of Israel was going to suffer in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel? I mean, how are we going to avoid it if that's our approach to spiritual leadership? Abusive leaders need enablers, and I don't want to be either one. Hophni and Phinehas, they had their Eli, and in God's eyes, all three are accountable. Uh, the truth is, uh, leaders sometimes throw their weight around. This is what they do. They grab for more and better, and they gratify their lusts. And you may be thinking, okay, I know that's not good. That's, that's not good. But why is it that God is so upset about this? What is uniquely bad about the sins of spiritual leaders? Second question, why does the Lord hate it when spiritual leaders abuse their authority in this way? Notice Eli's warning in verse 23. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Know, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. This is chilling. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Wow. God is not happy about what's going on in the nation of Israel. Uh, in verse 24, the Holy Spirit gives our narrator inside information into the will of God. Why did these guys not listen to their father's warning? Because it was too late. They had already sealed their fate. Their continued sin was in and of itself a part of the judgment that they were reaping from Almighty God. Uh, this is sort of like what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. Do you remember what he says? God gives them over to a, a debased mind. That's part of the judgment. What is it about their actions that made them so heinous that God would do such a thing, uh, that the, they would be such a, a stench in his nostrils? That lots of people are disrespectful. Lots of people are, are sacrilegious in the things that they do. Lots of people fool around sexually. Why is it so bad when spiritual leaders do it? Well, uh, it seems to me there are at least three reasons, and some of those are implied in this text. Some are more explicitly stated, but uh, three reasons. First of all, the sins of spiritual leaders tend to be greater because of who is committing the sin. The sins of spiritual leaders tend to be greater because of who is committing the sin. I mean, think about it. Eli's sons grew up in the shadow of the tabernacle. They spent time around the most pious and godly Israelites. And their dad, he had a greater knowledge of the Bible than others. He taught them how to read and write the scriptures. Most people living in Israel in that time didn't have that skill. And so they have this greater knowledge of the Bible than the average member of the community. And therefore, because of that greater knowledge, they are more culpable for the actions that they take because they know better. It's one thing for a brand new Christian to sin in these ways. It's a different matter for someone who ought to know better. Not only that, in the case of these sons, I mean, think about ministers even today who are paid, like myself, to do the work of the ministry. They have greater leisure, more time, to spend pursuing a relationship with God than the average person does. And this is the case for Eli's sons. They had more time to do it, more, more, more ability to focus on the relationship with God, and yet they went the other way. 
I, I mean, when I, I, I know this personally. When I worked in a corporate office, uh, typically I had to leave my house before 7 in order to get to work on time uh, because of traffic. If I left at 7.15, I would be late. If I left at 7, I would have about 20 or 30 minutes before work started. And that's when I would read my Bible and pray and kind of get ready for the day and, and, and ask God's help to, to live pleasing to him. And there was this constraint, this, this time constraint on my life that many of you deal with and even, even worse than that. And I can, I can tell you, I don't mind saying that even though I keep a pretty busy schedule now, I, I don't have that type of constraint anymore. Like, part of my job is to open up the Bible and get to know the Lord and spend time praying and studying the Bible. That, that's a great privilege. So for me and, and people in a similar position, there's just no excuse. Not only that, but as a practical matter, the sins of spiritual leaders, they tend to be greater because... Spiritual leaders have more trust, and they have more ability to kind of cover up what they're doing, so these little sins kind of tend to become bigger sins before anybody realizes what's going on. So the sins of spiritual leaders, they tend to be greater because of who is committing the sin. Second reason why, they tend to be greater because of the greater impact on other people. The greater impact on other people. So put yourself in a position of one of these worshiping families. Uh, You choose the best animal from your herd. You raise it up over the course of weeks as you're getting ready to go to the tabernacle. You make the journey. You bring the animal to the altar. You slaughter the animal. You're worshiping God. You put it, the, the correct portions of meat on the, on the altar. And then right in the middle of that worship, this, this guy who's supposed to be your pastor, who's supposed to be a spiritual leader, comes up and he interrupts you and he says, I want you to do this completely different from what you know God expects you to do. I mean, how jarring would that be? And keep in mind, the average person doesn't have a copy of the Bible. They depend on these guys to represent God to them, like to show them what God is like. And then later, you see this guy flirting with one of the tabernacle employees, like really laying it on thick, and you're super uncomfortable. And then your wife tells you, hey, I heard a rumor that this guy was sleeping with this girl. I mean, imagine what that would do to your spiritual relationship with God and your view of the Almighty. I mean, the sins of of leaders are greater. They tend to be greater because they impact a greater number of people. I mean, multiply this experience by thousands, and you would see the, the kind of impact on other people that these young men had. And I know that in a room this size, there are some of you who are dealing with the trauma, you're dealing with the fallout, you're dealing with the sin of a spiritual leader, a sin that a spiritual leader perpetrated against you. Maybe a a, a dad or a a husband or a pastor or a, a teacher of some kind, and it has absolutely rocked you to the core. These cracks are deep in the foundation of your faith because of what that guy did. And and I just want you to know that God sees that. He knows about it. And according to this passage, he is as angry about it as you are, and even more so. And I also want you to know this. There is a future. There is a plan for you. And we'll see this in a moment. Because God's the great, he's the great physician. And he can heal. And you might never forget those scars, but I'm telling you, they can become trophies in your life. I'm not asking you to forget them. I'm I'm not asking you to ignore them or pretend they don't exist. But what I'm saying is that God can redeem even those pains, even those hurts. 
Even when a spiritual leader burned you to the core, God's still good. But even all of this, even the greater culpability of a spiritual leader, the greater impact of his sins on other people, they they aren't even the main reason why God is so upset about these types of sins. Here's the main reason why. The sins of spiritual leaders tend to be greater because they cause greater slander to the glory of God. Right? God hates that. I mean, his glory is the greatest object of affection in all of the universe. God loves to display his glory for all people to see. And and the whole point of this spiritual leadership office is for that person to sort of be a megaphone for the glory of God, to publish it for all the people. And what these guys are doing is it's like they're taking a big shovel full of manure and just tossing it onto the glory of God. Here's what they're really doing. The indictment of the man of God in verses 27 and following is dripping with irony. And it's hard to see in English because our words are, they don't have the same exact definitions as some of the Hebrew words. But there's kind of a play on words here in this text that goes all the way through the end of chapter 4. There's a a word that's emphasized in Hebrew. And I'm going to tell you the word in Hebrew because it actually shows up later in someone's name. The word is kavod, kavod. Uh, it means glory or weight. So if you get to, to uh, later on in 1 Samuel, you'll, there's a baby that's born, and his name is Ichabod. Okay, you remember that name? And what does his name mean? It means the glory has departed. Kavod, Ichavod, the glory has departed. But that word kind of shows up all throughout these chapters. And I want to show you something. Look at verse 29. Why? Do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor, underline that word honor, that's that word, kavod. Why do you honor your sons above me? How do they do that? By fattening themselves. So you see the the kind of irony that this man of God is bringing to bear. Here's what Eli's doing. He's making his sons glorious, weighty both literally and figuratively. They're getting fat, and they're making themselves look like they're more important than God. And then skip down to verse, the end of verse 30. God says, far be it from me, for those who honor, kavod, me, I will honor, kavod. And those who despise me, which is a word that means to make me look like a lightweight, will be lightly esteemed. Do you see what's taking place here? This is why the sins of spiritual leaders are so heinous to God. Because when a leader who is supposed to represent the glory and the weightiness and the awesomeness of God communicates with his actions that God is a lightweight, when he makes himself fat through the gratification of his appetites and God small through his hypocrisy, then God is not happy about that. This is the main reason why it's so bad. And folks, there is very little that I can think of that is worse than a spiritual leader, a pastor, a professor, a teacher, who through his words or his actions makes everybody think that God is a lightweight. There's very little worse than that. And it happens way too often. We communicate that God doesn't know what's going on, that God doesn't care what's going on. He doesn't see that God doesn't care how we live our lives, that God can't provide for our needs, so I need to go out and I need to manipulate everybody else to give me what I need because God isn't going to do it. And when we do that, we're broadcasting to the world, God is small. 
God is insignificant. He's not good. God isn't even smart. What a travesty of spiritual leadership to represent the God of all the earth and to tell with the way that we live. God's just no big deal. Like, you don't even need to worry about God. Don't, don't even think about him. This is why, this is one of the reasons why, just as an aside, we don't hand out spiritual leadership positions to just anybody here at our church. This is serious stuff. We don't take it lightly. It is anathema to God, and this sort of thing ought to be anathema to us, and it leads us to our third question. How do spiritual leaders throw their weight around? Why is it so bad? Thirdly, though, what is God going to do about it? What is God going to do about it? You might recall what I said last week about Hannah's song of thanksgiving and praise from earlier in the chapter. Uh, that song is actually sort of like the, the theological legend for the whole map of, of 1 Samuel. It's sort of like the melodic theme uh, around which the whole song of this book is composed. It's a key to reading the rest of what's coming. Do you remember the main idea of that song? God is holy. God is only He's one of a kind in the way that he reverses the values of the world and upends the proud. A friend put it this way. He's the king of reversal. And this is what he's going to do. If you want to know what's going to happen to Eli and his house, that word just about sums it up. Reversal. What a reversal is coming for Eli and his house. His sons, uh, they were given, Eli and his sons, they were given specific instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 3. Here's what you get out of the sacrificial animal. You take the, the, the shoulder. Here's the word, zoroah in Hebrew. You take the zoroah. It's kind of like the shoulder. It's a specific cut of the animal. But that same word, Zeroah, when you're referring to a man, a human being, it refers to the arm, the whole arm, or it's often translated the strength of a man. And so here's what God's saying, God's saying to, to, to Eli. Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming. You're not satisfied with the Zeroah, right? The days are coming when I will cut off the Zeroah. And the Zoroah of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. See, in Hebrew, this is what God's doing. It's like a mic drop moment here, okay? He's saying, okay, you're not satisfied with the shoulder? You're not satisfied with the arm of the animal? That's not enough for you? Okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to cut off the Zoroah. I'm going to cut off your arm. We'll see how you like it. You think you're the heavyweight champions of the world? You're about to get real puny. Verse 32, Israel's going to prosper. Your family's going to be on the outside looking in. Verse 33, most of your sons are going to die, but I'll spare somebody just so he can see how decimated your household has become. Verse 34, your two sons are going to be put to death on the same day. Verse 36, the few puny members of your household I leave on this earth, they aren't going to be big men who bulk up on steak. These guys are going to be so starving that they're going to be coming to the priest and saying, Please put me in one of the priest's places so that I can have a little crust of bread. Mic drop. Listen to me. Don't be afraid of that guy who uses his spiritual authority to take your freedom and to take your money. Don't be afraid. Don't fret about the evildoer who abused you in unspeakable ways. There may be a time, there may come a time when you begin to pity that fool. 
Because when God gets a hold of him, his fortunes are going to reverse and judgment's going to fall and it is going to fall heavy. And into the very pit he dug for the weak and weary, he himself is going to fall. That's the way it's going to happen. What's God going to do about it? A whole lot. But notice the verse I skipped over. God's solution is not chaos. It's not spiritual anarchy. He's not saying, well, I'm just going to do away with the the priesthood altogether. He's going to provide someone better. Look at verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart. Folks, the solution to spiritual oppression from spiritual leaders is not spiritual chaos. The solution to spiritual oppression is not to go back to the book of Judges where everyone does that which is right in his own eyes. God's solution is to send a faithful priest. Now, the immediate referent of this prophecy ends up being a man named Zadok. He shows up in 2 Samuel. He ministers as high priest in the presence of David the king and later David's son Solomon. But it's pretty obvious that this promise is pointing us even a little further than that, isn't it? This entire chapter, it leaves us longing for a future with the kind of leadership that we all long for and we know is right and good for us. Like, it can only be found in who? Who is it really about, guys? It's all about Jesus, the faithful high priest. Compare the growth of Samuel in the presence of the Lord. These little mentions of Samuel, compare them with the way that Luke describes the early days of Jesus' life in Luke chapter 1. Compare, look at the way that the the letter to the Hebrews describes the priesthood of Jesus Christ and, and compare it with verse 35. And you see what I mean. God is going to send a faithful priest, and it's Jesus. So let's just be up front for a minute. The world is very adept at pointing out all the injustices and the, uh, 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 the wrongdoings perpetrated by leaders, especially spiritual leaders. I mean, if you go out into the world, journalists lick their chops, don't they, when they learn about the scandal of some spiritual leader. But the world is going to tell you this. You've got to cast aside all spiritual authority. You see what's going on? This guy abused you. He lied to you. He was a hypocrite. He... he he was a, a con man. So you need to cast off all spiritual authority and look within. All authority is evil. All power is harmful and oppressive. All claims to truth are really assertions to violence. You don't follow anybody but your true inner self. That's who you listen to. That's what the world is going to say. But friends, whether you're a Christian or not, you need to know something. That way of thinking, this is... This is a fact. That way of thinking is just as spiritually abusive as the guy that gets up in front of everybody on TV and says, you've got to give me $1,000 or you know, something bad's going to happen to you. We need to recognize it for what it is. It's the old serpent whispering in the ear of Eve. Did God really say? You don't need to cast off all authority. You need the right authority. You need the right representation. We all need to take refuge in the reality that God is not mocked by the hypocritical leaders who get fat by devouring the sheep. He has sent us a king who put himself last. Do you remember the the passage that Bill read earlier in the service? What did Jesus say to the Father? He said, Father, what, what should I say? Save me from this hour? What hour was he talking about? The hour of his death. 
the hour of his suffering. Father, save me from this hour. That's what every other spiritual leader would tend to do. I don't want to suffer. I want to devour the flock. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, Father, should I ask, save me from this hour? No, it's for this hour that I have come. Glorify your name. See, what Jesus did is he came into the world and he said, God, Father, I want to show how weighty and how awesome and how amazing you are. And in order to do that, I'm going to lay down my life. Folks, this is the faithful priest that God promises us here in 1 Samuel chapter 2. He's worthy of our worship and he's worthy of our attention. So this morning, let's just re- let's repent of, of being this type of spiritual leader. Let's take our eyes off of these leaders that have a contempt for Christ. Let's just stop paying attention to them all together. And let's worship the one who laid aside his life in order to glorify the Father. Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus, the faithful high priest. When so many spiritual leaders put themselves first and make themselves fat in contempt of your offering and your worship. Jesus never once did anything like that. God, those of us in this room who are in a position of spiritual leadership in our homes, in the church, in some ministry, God, we're humbled and we're, so, we're sobered by this account. We don't want to be counted among these abusive spiritual leaders who end up falling under your judgment. And Father, we know that in order to escape, we need the blood of Christ and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. So Father, I pray that you would make us leaders who live like Jesus, who lay aside our prerogatives, who lay aside the pursuits of wealth and pleasure, and who give ourselves to the ministry of making your glory look as glorious as it is. Father, I pray for those in this room who have been oppressed and abused by somebody who took advantage of their spiritual position of of authority. I pray that you would pour out your healing mercy in the hearts of each of those those people. Perhaps people listening online, they just don't even feel like they can come into a church building because of something that happened in their past. God, I pray that out of that, those ashes that you would bring beauty and out of those scars that you would bring trophies of grace, that you would use each person that you've called your own to bring glory to your great name. Father, we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our glorious and faithful high priest. Amen.